Hello and welcome to the podcast, People, Places, Power, with me, Nick Cull of the University of Southern California. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we're going to talk about the interrelationship between reputation and foreign policy, and maybe a few other issues uh, along the way as well. But for our first episode, we're going to talk about the challenges facing the United States of America. Coming out of the Trump administration, we have uh, many, many reports around the world of a crisis in the reputation of the United States. Uh, journalists talking about massive challenges that the United States faces owing to poor uh, image around the world and um, problems of American credibility as the country seeks to resume leadership of uh, democracy, free world, and all those uh, good things. Uh, we even have editorials now uh, and reports arguing that maybe the time's come to uh, rebuild uh, something like the United States Information Agency. And I've written two books on the United States Information Agency, and I wouldn't necessarily uh, go that far at this stage. So we're going to talk about the image challenges facing the United States and what President Biden can do about it. Yeah, because everybody's been saying, haven't they, Nick, in the media, but also in personal conversations, uh, obviously the image of the United States has been trashed uh, by the Trump regime, and Joe Biden has got a huge mountain to climb to restore America's good name internationally. And um, I have to admit, I'm slightly skeptical about that, um, that perception, because uh, we've got to remember that America's been here before. America is periodically unpopular on the international stage. And the last time this happened was during the second term of George W. Bush. And uh, in, in my survey, the Nation Brands Index, it recovered almost instantly, almost literally the moment that Obama stepped into the White House, uh, America was back up to uh, the top of the charts again. So there's some reason, I think, to suppose that uh, the same thing will happen uh, now, next time we measure it we'll find that everybody likes America again. No, I take your point, but I, I still think it's been interesting to look at the way in which the negative views of the United States developed during the Trump period that, uh, you know, in your own index to begin with, we could see there was bad feeling about um, the American political process and uh, opinion towards uh, the uh, American political system uh, declined or positive opinion towards that system declined significantly just with the uh, campaign before uh, Trump had really done anything. Uh, but by the end of the Trump years, people weren't just skeptical of Trump and politics. They were also skeptical about the American people. And I thought that that loss of faith in the American people was, was significant. And that, if you like, the rot had spread uh, during the, during the, 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 the Trump period. Do you think Biden can stop the rot? Mm. It's a really interesting question, isn't it? I mean, um, I'm, one of the things that we noticed um, when measuring the international image of the US during uh, the, the second Bush administration was that uh, people's antipathy towards America remained firmly in the area of foreign policy during Bush's first term. It wasn't until after he was uh, re-elected, allegedly, um, that the negative feelings started to sort of spread out beyond just American policy abroad. 
and started to infect other areas. So the first thing that we noticed was that people's perceptions of what sort of um, what sort of characters the Americans themselves are began to diminish after he was re-elected. And um, one, one shouldn't overinterpret really, but it, it seemed pretty logical what was going on there. People were saying the first time round, it may have been an accident that they got this guy, but if he's been elected for a second term, they obviously want him. And therefore, we have to start asking ourselves, do we actually trust the American people uh, to vote in the right guy? Um, but by the, by the end of uh, Bush's second term, this sort of negative halo effect had spread out so far that you could find it popping up in all kinds of extraordinary places. For example, um, around the world, people's perceptions of the beauty of the American landscape had actually diminished by the end of Bush too. So it was as if he'd somehow made people believe that America was an, a less good-looking place even than it was in the first place. So, so this kind of negative halo is, is noted, and it is something that occurs. Too many questions here, but uh, it may well be that because Trump wasn't re-elected, that the rot won't extend to the American people uh, in the way that it did during the second term. But we can't look at the transition out of the uh, Bush administration without talking about Obama and, and a big part of that bounce back uh, of uh, America in the standing of the world was the enthusiasm that uh, people around the world had for Barack Obama. Uh, and my, my sense was that a lot of uh, hopes, even dreams were, were uh, projected onto him and he was rewarded simply for not being George W. Bush. Uh, think of the way in which he was given that Nobel Prize without having actually uh, done anything. And then, of course, he goes on to, um, for his own reasons, uh, wage war in a number of places uh, ar around the world. So people wanted to believe in Obama. They wanted to like him. I mean, I mean it is very common, isn't it, for, for, for people to project um, their feelings about nations onto the leaders. Um, and Obama was um, packed with symbolism of all of all sorts. So it was perhaps inevitable um, that people were going to, in some ways, overread him um, and get more excited about him than perhaps uh, was was really justified. But then we get to this question of what do people actually want the United States to be in the world? Uh, what do they want the United States to represent? Um, and uh, as a historian, looking back, the, you know, one of the periods I'm fascinated by is the period immediately after the, the Vietnam War, when the world transitioned from widespread anti-Americanism almost overnight to a much more sympathetic uh, response towards the United States. And the, the old United States Information Agency was really quite surprised by the speed of the turnaround of opinion. And it seemed that people actually liked the United States in its humbled position. And that the fact that the United States had been through this terrible experience of Vietnam, followed by the experience of Watergate, actually, and, and then came to them in a, with a, in a humble uh, frame of mind, uh, still looking for collaborative responses and to cooperate and to work together, that that, that approach really, uh, really worked. Um, I, I think that uh, um, I, th I think that Americans um, neglect the extent to which foreigners are aware of America's flaws and actually quite like America even because of its uh, flaws, or certainly um, they don't expect uh, America to have 
no flaws and no weakness. I, I believe that Superman, if you like, uh, Superman would be intolerable if it were not for kryptonite. It's only because we're aware of the weakness that the country can be uh, appreciated in the world. Yeah. I mean, there, there, there are th at least three issues that I'd like to pick up out of that. Um, the first one, I think, is that um, the world and most particularly America's allies have always had this slightly ambiguous feeling towards the United States that they want it to be powerful. They want it to be all powerful because the guarantor of the multilateral system, the guarantor of world peace, the guarantor of, of the rule of law and all the rest of it. But on the other hand, they don't want it to wave that stick around too blatantly. Um, and uh, this, I think, is the, is the source of that ambiguity one sometimes sees. And when America behaves modestly, um, that's when it's most liked. And when it behaves, um, in, in, when, it, when it brags, when it throws its weight around, that's when people stop liking it. And isn't that always the way? If there's a powerful individual or a powerful group there, um, we can only like their power, we can only appreciate their power if they're, if they're modest about it. Noblesse oblige, as the, as the French used to say. Well, I really like the idea of directing attention to wanting to like a country and this element of, uh, of, of choice. Um, and uh, historically, I can see that um, there's been tremendous value for the countries that have been the pariahs in the imaginations of the rest of the world. I've been, in my own research, I've been looking at uh, South Africa. The apartheid state uh, played a tremendous role in being the bad guy in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s, there weren't many things that so many countries could agree on other than that uh, South Africa was a, a, a terrible place that really, really needed to change. And nothing good that the South African government could talk about, like, um, uh, for example, heart transplants, pioneering heart transplant surgery, could compete with the value of that state in being a problem that needed to be fixed by the world's community. But moving on from that, we then have to consider, uh, based on what you're saying, what people want the United States to be around the world. What do the people around the world want the United States to be? And historically, what have they expected or needed the United States to be? Well, if you don't know, Nick, then we're both in trouble. <laughs> well, I think historically the United States has... Um, meant a lot of different things. Um, when uh, the time of the original settlement, people needed to believe that there was a kind of open space, a place of, of possibility, uh, a new world to counterbalance the old. Uh, I think people were looking for alternatives to the, uh, the European class system for, uh, and then when we get through to the 20th century, they're plainly looking, uh, looking for leadership, uh, and looking for uh, energy and possibility. But that brings, you know, uh, that was uh, the 20th century. Now we have to think, what do they want today? What can the United States right now do right now? And what do people want right now? Well, I think they just want, everybody wants everything back to normal, don't they? I mean, that's what the pandemic's done more than anything else. It's just given um, everybody this burning, burning desire to to get back to some kind of normalcy. And so in the domain of international relations, insofar as regular folks ever think about international relations, they just want America to be America again. Um, over time, 
that, that won't last long because we'll get used to normality or a relative normality very quickly, as we always do. And once uh, the pandemic is, is, is more or less defeated, uh, which is going to take a great deal longer than most people think, because there's the whole of the rest of the world to uh, to, to worry about. But we'll get we'll get used to that pretty quickly, and then I think people will start looking um, slightly more quizzically at America and at the Biden administration and saying, "So, what are you going to do that's new? What are you going to do that's better than happened before Trump?" So this gets us to the importance of a cooperative approach. We live in a world in which no single country can tackle the problems that we face. We have to have cooperative solutions to problems like climate, migration, terrorism, the, the global economy, or, or the pandemic. You know, we're going to have to work together to deal with these problems. And by extension, countries are going to be judged based on how well they cooperate. It'll, that'll be how we uh, evaluate countries. Are they helping to address the problems that we all share? Now, for the United States, I think this raises a problem because I don't see great habits of cooperation uh, in some corners uh, in uh, US leadership. Uh, immediately after the Iraq war, I, I used to talk to US government audiences about this, and, and I, I put it to them like this. I'd say, imagine there's a man in a bar and he expects to be the only one doing the talking and he expects everybody else to stand around listening and going along with what he's suggesting. There is only one way, one reason that you'd put up with somebody like that. And that is if they were buying all the drinks. Now, if you think of the United States behaving that way in global circles, uh, we know the United States is not prepared to buy all the drinks in the global barroom. Therefore, they need to find a different mode of leadership, a different way of interacting. Yeah. And the lesson, of course, for Biden and all future administrations is that they're not going to like you forever, even if you're buying the drinks. Um, and that kind of tolerance very quickly turns into despising um, the one who's buying the drinks and doing all the talking. And you, you know, you can't expect countries to feel gratitude towards you. Um, they will eventually despise you. Um, the, 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 other, the other point that I wanted to, to, to pick out of what you just said, which I think is a, is a key one, and something which I've started noticing a lot looking at um, the surveys, is that um, one really does have to make a distinction between people liking a country and people wanting to like a country. And this, it sounds like playing with words, but it's actually quite a significant difference because there are some countries out there that have got very weak or very negative images, which it's worth explaining this every time, is a huge problem. Um, for people who are not familiar with these constructs of national image, it may all sound rather superficial, but superficial it's not. Because basically, as I wrote years and years and years ago, Countries with weak or negative reputations trade at a discount. Countries with powerful and positive reputations trade at a premium. So having a bad or a negative image for a country is a huge, huge problem. It's a structural deficit because it basically means that you have to sell everything you do cheap, otherwise people won't buy it. And they just don't trust you. They don't believe you. They don't like anything you do. And so the countries that have weak or negative reputations, you have to ask yourself, is it just because they don't like what you've been doing and that therefore if you stop doing it, they might start liking you again? 
or is it that there's somehow nothing you can do to make them like you? And um, you look at a country like, uh, for example, Saudi Arabia, um, which at the moment uh, is a country that is mistrusted by very many people around the world. And it's very clear that in that particular case, it's not just that they mistrust Saudi Arabia for something that it's done recently or something that it's failed to do. It's because Saudi Arabia performs for them a useful function in their world map. It's the country that they don't want to like. And that's why Saudi Arabia can, can do wonderful things, and it does do wonderful things. It gives enormous amounts of money to charity. It contributes to economic development all over the world and all the rest of it. And it doesn't make any difference because people just look at that behavior and they immediately ascribe impure motivations to it. They say, you're only doing that because you've got loads of money to spare because you want us to like you. You're trying to buy our approval, which is very distressing and very depressing for the countries. So its problem is people don't want to like it. America, they don't like it right now because of what it's been doing over the last years, but they want to like America. And so they will. All other things being equal, America will be back pretty soon. Not instantly, because there's a lot of explaining to do there. But I think it's good because we, you know, we, 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 we can't lionize America anymore like we did in the past. The international community during the last four years has got used to the idea that America cannot be depended on at all times for everything, that it's a country with huge problems of its own, um, social, cultural, political, and now economic as well. And that we, it, it, to a degree, this experience of the Trump years has broken the world's dependence on America. And that can only be a good thing. It's more realistic now. It's just another country, a big one, a powerful one, an important one, but just another country. Well, no one's ever elected because of their foreign policy views, uh, is, the, is the usual wisdom in the United States. But at least for whatever reason, uh, you know, for whatever reason Biden was elected, he certainly has foreign policy experience. You know, in the Senate, he chaired the foreign policy, uh, foreign relations committee for, for many years. Uh, and um, uh, I, I've been really interested in some of the proposals that uh, he he put out during that time at the very end of the Clinton administration he was proposing a revitalization of American cultural diplomacy uh, for instance so I think he has the experience to uh, provide leadership in, in in the foreign policy space. Sure. Well, uh, America is a is a mighty global empire, and mighty global empires always have this problem um, that they tend to. Um, conflate themselves with the whole planet and the whole world and find it uh, frighteningly easy to overlook the fact that there are other countries and there are other things going on. Um, the, the Americas is a large but essentially remote island separated from the rest of the world by two vast oceans. And growing up in the United States, it's very easy to get a slightly unworldly view of the world. The experience of the average American, this is very harsh, I know, but you go north and you meet Canadians who are basically Americans with a different passport. You go south and you meet Mexicans who are basically savages. This is not my view, but this is the stereotypical, the cartoonish view of the average American. You go left or you go right and you get wet. And that's basically it. That's the worldview that results from that kind of isolation. And so you end up believing that uh, foreigners... Uh, are either just Americans with different passports, like Europeans, uh, or they're savages, like the rest of the world. Um, and it's not terribly nuanced. And so to come to the, uh, to, to the point where you were 
so almost verbatim quoting my uh, TED talk, no single country is big enough to tackle the global challenges, is absolutely right. And the Americans have difficulty believing that there's any challenge which is too big for America because America is the same size as the world. Um, and therefore, no problem that fits in the world could possibly be too big for America. Uh, it, it's, it's a problem. I mean, I've said over and over again that there's really only one problem in the world today, and that is um, that um, we have the wrong culture of governance. Um, that countries, uh, and America perhaps is uh, more than any other, are configured to compete rather than configured to collaborate. And that's the thing that needs to change. Um, and America is probably going to be the last one to, to understand that. Um, and, and that's going to be the challenge. How can Biden present it to the American people that America can't make it on its own? It's such a difficult domestic political message for the United States say that we're not big enough, we're not powerful enough. It's the opposite of what American presidents are expected to say to American citizens. It sounds unpatriotic, it sounds un-American, it sounds unconstitutional, but it's the reality. And so for Trump, it was easier to even deny that climate change, ex even deny that climate change exists, rather than say, actually on our own, there's nothing very much we can do. So that's got to be the huge challenge. Um, so somebody said to me the other day, what should America do now? Um, you know, with its with its power, with its respect, as soon as it's assuming it can, won that back again. And the only answer I can think of is that the biggest challenge in the world is the best challenge for America. And the biggest challenge in the world is to start driving this change in the culture of governance worldwide from fundamentally competitive to fundamentally collaborative. And in a way, that's not a difficult story for America to tell because it's just come from a short and very unhappy experiment in being com purely competitive. America first, we can do it on our own. We can do it better without anybody's help and without anybody's support. And it was beginning to be evident just how, um, how dangerous that game is. So the narrative could now pivot and say, that was totally the wrong approach. We're gonna go the other way now and see whether that works better because we know it must. Well, I think one of the things I admire in President Biden is his ability to learn and his ability to uh, revise positions. And uh, he doesn't seem to be the kind of politician who never changes their mind in the way that uh, Margaret Thatcher would offer that as a, a political virtue. He does seem to listen. He does seem to change his mind. But ha having said that, it's a bit worrying that so many uh, old folks from the uh, Clinton and Obama years are, are, are back. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I didn't spend those years in ecstasy at the wisdom of American foreign policy. Uh, they were very frustrating years for people who were looking at uh, public diplomacy and exchange uh, issues. Um, uh, so um, I think that uh, there's um, a lot to learn, a lot to rebuild. And um, you know, I'm hoping that, uh, that uh, this team will be able to do it. But, but, but having said that, I'm, I'm impressed by how Biden has come across as uh, a person and how in, in the first uh, you know, couple of months of his administration, he's hit the right notes. And um, I, I think people, the people that I speak to are reassured to have a president who isn't keeping them awake at night with worry. Uh, and he seems to be uh, very empathetic with people's uh, troubles uh, right now, uh, and heaven knows they've got enough of them. And and I think it helps that when when that Americans at least 
know that he's a person who's suffered a lot in his life. And uh, when I talk to people about Biden, they will often mention how that you know they're aware that he lost his wife and and child uh, early on in his as a young man uh, that he's lost his his son uh, more recently and they they feel that he would understand them and and I think that this is one of the the dynamics the the sort of the imagined uh, person that's projected onto a leader that people imagine that Biden would like them and understand them. And that's tremendously helpful in, 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 this, in, in this situation, given the challenges that people are, are, are facing right now. Sure, sure. But that's all great. Um, and it's really good. But in a sense, what you're saying there is that he's the right guy to bring us back to where we were before. Um, do you see anything in his past career that suggests that he might be able to actually lead America forwards? To do the because business as usual is 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 no good, and we mustn't be mis, misled. I think by the by the experience of of the Trump administration to imagine that going back to normal is good enough because it ain't. Re- recent times have been chaotic and scary for people around the world. Um, it's not not just for Americans, and uh, Biden is undoubtedly a reassuring figure. He's a he's a distinguished looking elderly statesman. Um, he believes in the rule of law. Um, his uh, his his um, social justice credentials are impeccable, and I think that's hugely important internationally at this point, because again, Black Lives Matter and associated uh, phenomena are not just an American phenomenon. That's gone around the world, and again, people will be looking to the next American president through that prism? Is he somebody who understands and genuinely feels for social justice, despite the fact that he is the age that he is? And he's really good on that point because he's he appears to be, at any rate, judged, judging by his pronouncements so far and his behavior so far, um, fiercely pro-social justice. I mean fiercely, positively, actively. Sure, but you know, I see a danger of um, neglecting uh, this issue of collaboration that he has to hit the ground running with uh, with collaboration with international solutions and uh, he has to be open to to dialogue with with countries around the world uh, to build uh, collective responses to these problems neglect I think to um, talk to the rest of the world because the rest of the world is sitting there waiting and obviously there's so much on his plate domestically at the moment that it would be the easiest thing in the world for him to uh, have the conversations he needs to have with other heads of state. He, he, needs, he needs to remember um, that he's a very key member of the team that runs the planet as president of the United States. The people around the world are listening to what he's got to say and watching what he's doing, not because they expect the United States to... to to run the planet or anything of the sort, but just because that's one of the ways in which they measure the temperature of the of the world at the moment. One of the things that my research has shown over the years is the United States is just about the only foreign country that most people around the world regularly think about. Um, most people in, on the planet really don't think very much about other countries apart from their own. Yeah, no, no, no. You're you're completely uh, you're completely right. And uh, you know, my sense is that people in the United States 
don't have a clear idea of what the world thinks about them and that they get worried about the wrong things. I mean, there's been tremendous worry in the United States about the uh, uh, a crisis in America's image, but the sorts of things Americans worry about are things like mass shootings or what will the world think when it's revealed that people on Wall Street have been stealing or that crazy people have been elected to high office. Uh, and um, well, let me float this idea. I think there's something that happens in the world that I would call reputational discounting, where um, certain behaviors are uh, known and expected within uh, particular nation states. So they can actually do that, uh, uh, do that behavior without um, their uh, international reputation being uh, greatly affected. And uh, the U.S. can have Hollywood scandals and uh, Wall Street scandals and Washington scandals with, without it, um, with, without it um, uh, really making that much difference. I, I have a different explanation for it. I, I think the, the reason why um, the, the, the first set of examples you gave um, didn't have any impact uh, on people's perceptions of America is because they're domestic issues. And most people don't care and don't notice and don't even know about domestic issues in other countries. Even a, a prominent country like America that people do pay some attention to, what goes on inside America doesn't really concern other people very much. Um, they observe it, they're more aware of it than they are of domestic issues in other countries, but it doesn't really affect their perception of the country because everybody knows that you know this is a, a busy, vibrant country. It's got a huge amount of bad stuff going on. And, huge amount of good stuff going on. It doesn't concern people. But when it's something like um, like extraordinary rendition or Snowden or what have you, that's America reaching out beyond its own borders and disturbing the international environment. And that's when people start caring about it. Uh, that, that's one of the simplest and strongest patterns that one sees from the Nation Brands Index over the last 15 years, that the only time, really, I mean, I've often said, Nick, as, as you know very well, that the Nation Brands Index is the most boring survey in the history of social science, um, just because people never really seem to change their minds about other countries under any circumstances. The only time they ever do is when that country is perceived to reach out beyond its borders and harm, abuse, insult, damage others. Yeah, but then, but then we get to the things that do bother international opinion. And it was really obvious that the world was very bothered by um, the, re the revelations of Edward Snowden uh, on, 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 on spying and, and, and so forth, and was, was very bothered uh, by the um, special rendition when terrorist subjects were taken to secret interrogation centers in Romania, the black sites, so-called, uh, by um, abuse at uh, Abu Ghraib prison, by you know, what happened at, uh, and happens at uh, Guantanamo Bay. Um, those things really, really did seem to worry people. And I, I think that America has spent 120 years through uh, Hollywood and, and other mechanisms telling the world that it's the country of justice. And people want to have a country that stands for justice and procedure and law and order. And if the United States violates its own rules, violates uh, the tenets of its own image, um, then, then people object to it. And the image of the United States in, internationally is uh, affected. Yes, I think that's right. And I do also agree with, with what you say, that um, uh, international public opinion 
tends not to be bothered by the things that Americans assume must bother them. No, I think you're right, Simon, and and I, t I take the point. But uh, but I think that we get to some issues that are both domestic and international. And, and your argument is actually exactly why the United States has to be really concerned about the problem of domestic racism and intolerance, because people around the world are imagining how they would be treated if they lived in the United States. So this is the importance of uh, Black Lives Matter. I think Black Lives Matter uh, and the, the federal government's response to that outcry is a litmus test of the validity, not just of the Biden administration, but of um, the political claims of the American system uh, as, as a whole. I'm sure you're right. And, and it's impossible to imagine that people could see um, a lot of what's been going on in the US in the past few years and not at some level lose respect or esteem uh, for the country, even if that doesn't affect them directly. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for listening. This has been People, Places and Power. I'm still Nick Cull. And, and I'm Simon Anhold, still. <laughs>